Good morning, lovely church family. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Dale, uh, and I'm one of the elders here, one of the team that leads at New Life Community Church. This morning, we're continuing our preaching series in the book of Mark with a look at Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. So you can find that now, but before we go there, before we read that passage, I'm, I want to do a little experiment with you this morning. Okay, some of you look a little bit scared. You should be. No, it's fine. Um, right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to turn around, and when I come back, I'm going to be a different person. Okay? Is everybody ready for that? Okay, right. Are you ready? How's that? It is actually, it's still Dale. I'll prove it to you. Okay. All right. Glasses on. Who's that? Glasses off. Dale. Now, <laughs> these are my reading glasses that I should probably wear more often, in all honesty. Uh, but I don't need them for preaching because I make sure my font is super, super big. Uh, so don't worry about that. Do they make me look more intelligent, though? Oh, yeah. Yes? Some of you are saying that's not hard. Okay. In the comic books, that Superman t-shirt on today, nerd alert, in the comic books, glasses make the difference between Superman and Clark Kent. Superman, Clark Kent. I mean, obviously, there is the big red S on the suit. There is the cape, and there is the undies on the outside. That also separates Clark Kent from Superman. But it's not like he wears a mask, like Batman or like Spider-Man. It's literally just the glasses on, Clark Kent, glasses off, Superman. There is probably just a little bit of difference in the characters, I suppose, the egos of those two aspects. In the movies, Clark Kent is always portrayed as a bit of a womble. He's a bit of a buffoon. He's a, he's a country farm boy from Smallville, and he's a bit of a scaredy cat. He's a bit clumsy. Whereas, of course, Superman is fearless, invulnerable, almost all-powerful, and, and he comes from the otherworldly planet of Krypton. One of the threads that connects Clark Kent and Superman is the supporting character of Lois Lane. Now, she's a journalist, and she's partnered with Clark Kent at the Planet newspaper, which means she's often right in the thick of things when Superman shows up to save the day. The problem is whenever I watch the Superman films, I find myself shouting at the TV, because why can't Lois Lane see that Clark Kent is Superman? Why can she not grasp this simple, simple fact? She sees them both face to face, very close. It's ridiculous, isn't it? I've proved it this morning. But I think my frustration isn't really fair to Lois. Because I don't think the glasses are really what makes the difference. The problem for Lois Lane is that she's just too familiar with Clark Kent. 
She's so blinded by the fact that she knows all there is to know about the guy, who he is, that she can't see anything else. She's been to his hometown. She's met the people he grew up with. She's met his mum and dad. She's probably seen the house he grew up in. In fact, she's so familiar with Clark Kent that she's blinded to any evidence to the contrary. Doesn't matter that Clark disappears every time Superman appears. Doesn't matter that Clark has the exact same voice, height, hair, build, face as Superman. She just can't see it. Can't even conceive of it. Her perception of Clark Kent fits nice and neatly into a tidy box in her mind. And there's no character, no dimension to him outside that. She's utterly blinded to the reality right in front of her because it doesn't fit with what she knows. Now, I'm sure you're all tired of hearing about Superman now. But here's the point. There's a similar problem that occurs with the people in Jesus' hometown when he pops in for a visit. Let's have a read of Mark 6, 1 to 6. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him. How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. First thing I want to say is, if if a bad day is just laying your hands on a few sick people and they get healed, I'll take that. But Jesus has been busy since he left his hometown in Nazareth to begin his public ministry. So far, we've learned that Jesus has demonstrated his unique authority in teaching the word of God. He's got a unique authority to cast out demons, to heal the sick, and to forgive sins. He's got a unique authority to correctly interpret and apply the law, to know and explain the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And he's got a unique authority over even the elements themselves, the wind and the waves. He even has the authority to raise the dead back to life. Now, Sometimes we read that and we just kind of go, oh, yeah, yeah, I know. This is a big deal. It's a big deal in ancient Egypt, um, Israel. It's not like Jesus is just another one of the guys running around doing this stuff. There hasn't been a movement of God or a demonstration of God's power like this in hundreds of years. God hasn't even spoken. He hasn't even raised up a prophet to communicate to his people 
for hundreds of years. The nation of Israel has been inwardly groaning, desperately waiting for generations for God to break the silence, to reverse that that spiritual drought by pouring out his presence and power like rain on a parched field. And then here comes Jesus sweeping through the land, causing life and freedom and healing and restoration to spring up wherever he goes, like oases in the desert. And slowly but surely, bit by bit, Jesus is revealing not just what God is doing, but but who he is. His deity, his godhood. He is God incarnate. God in the flesh, in human form. And word of his activities, those stories about him have made it back to his hometown. So you would have thought that his hometown would have rolled out the welcome wagon, right? For this local boy made good. Well, there's no fanfare, there's no parade, there's not even a feast in his honor. In fact, when Jesus gets up to teach, people are astonished. They say, where did this man get these things what is the wisdom given to him how are such mighty works done by his hands now they don't go as far as the scribes and pharisees had done in saying that jesus must be possessed of a demon but there's a hint of that train of thought in their thinking where's he get these powers from can't be from god They can see the evidence that clearly points to who Jesus is and whose authority he is exercising, but just like Lois Lane, they cannot or will not make the connection. After all, these people, they know Jesus. They know his his family, his, his father, his mother, his brothers, and his sisters. They know he was a carpenter. He might have worked hard to repair the roof of one of their homes or hang a new door or repair a broken piece of furniture. Imagine that. We could go further. There would have been people there who would have held Jesus as a baby. And they would have said things like, Mary, I think it's nappy time. Something doesn't smell good. They would have seen him play with the other kids, fall over, graze his knee and cry. They knew who Jesus was. They knew that he did all the things that everyone else does. Got cold just like everyone else. Sweated when it was hot just like everyone else. Probably hit his thumb with a hammer when he was making stuff just like everyone else. You might think I'm being irreverent. This is the son of God we're talking about after all but nothing could be further from the truth. Because this is one of the most amazing truths about God the Son taking on flesh, becoming human. God didn't separate him out from all of the realities of harm in the world and all of the realities of humanness. He didn't wrap him up in cotton wool or create a sort of protective bubble around him. And the reaction of these people proves it. Jesus was fully human and everyone knew it. The problem is that knowledge limited the expectations of him. They knew all there was to know 
about him. And therefore, there was nothing new to know. The problem was their knowledge wasn't big enough, and it certainly wasn't God enough. The thing is, to think you know all there is to know about a person is a pretty foolish way to approach any relationship. For example, I know my wife. In fact, it's probably fair to say that I know her better than anyone else in the whole world. And yet one of the greatest joys about knowing her is that I do not know everything. After 23 years of marriage, I am still learning new things about her. Things she likes, things she dislikes. To be fair, it's easier to work those things out. But I am continuing to learn the things she thinks, what she is capable of. I'm still excited and surprised to learn these new things about her every single day. And that should have been the response of Jesus' hometown too. But instead they reject him. They take offense at him. Why? Why are they offended at him? Well, to some degree because of petty jealousy, right? Who does this guy think he is? He's just one of us. He's just a carpenter. He's no better than us. But I think even this is rooted more deeply in their inability to reconcile what they know of Jesus with what he's claiming. I think Luke chapter 4 verses 16 to 30 recalls the same incident. And there are some helpful details in there that shed some light on our passage. Firstly, there's the part of scripture that Jesus was reading and teaching from in the synagogue. Luke tells us that Jesus is reading from Isaiah 61. I'm going to read a bit of it to you. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now this is just a snippet from a much longer chapter in Isaiah that's all about a new thing that God is doing. God himself is promising to do a new thing for his people. A new season of God's rule and reign is going to be established a new movement of God to bring restoration and fruitfulness back to his people. And everyone knew that this hadn't happened yet. This was one of those great and glorious Old Testament prophecies that everyone was waiting to be fulfilled. And now here's Jesus the carpenter, the boy next door, saying, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. Talk about delusions of grandeur. In other words, it's like Jesus was saying, look, the waiting is over. God's broken his silence. The spiritual drought is over. God has poured out his presence and his power in and through me. No wonder they weren't massively impressed. But it seems like knowing the intentions of their hearts and knowing that they'd rejected him, in verse 24 and 27, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, 
no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Okay, what does that mean? Well, Jesus is likening himself to those prophets of old, the people that God had raised up to speak to his people on his behalf. And guess what? Each one of those was rejected by the very people that God had sent them to. Jesus says, That's, you're doing the same thing to me. You're rejecting me like you've rejected all the prophets. And what's interesting about the examples he's highlighted in Elisha and Elijah is that when God's people rejected them, God said, okay. And he took them and he sent them to the foreigners. He sent them to the Gentiles. He sent them to those outside of the kingdom of God instead. Both the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian were outside the people of God. So what happens here in Nazareth in Jesus' hometown is like a little picture. Not only of how God, God's people repeatedly reject the prophets he sends them, but that in response God sends them somewhere else. Luke's account of this event actually finishes a lot more savagely than Mark's. Verse 28 to 30. When they, when the people heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which, there was, on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through his midst, he went away. Crumbs alive. The one group of people who should have received him with open arms and open hearts, are instead offended by him, reject him. And filled with rage, they try to execute him. They fail this time, as Jesus miraculously passes through them. But can you see how Jesus' hometown foreshadows the reaction of the Jewish people as a whole? Again, the Jews... God's people, the people who should have welcomed him with open arms and hearts, are unable or unwilling to see anything but the man of Nazareth. They knew who Jesus of Nazareth was. They knew everything there was to know about him. And so offended by him and enraged with his claims to be not just a prophet, but, but God himself, they murdered him on a cross. With the result that when Jesus rose again and commissioned his disciples, he told them to go not only to the Jews, but to all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So that the good news of the new thing that God had done in and through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection would be taken to the Gentiles. That's us, by the way. So that we could receive forgiveness for our sins, a right relationship to God, and an eternal life in his presence in his new kingdom. 
back in our passage in Mark, Jesus' response to the unbelief and rejection of his hometown is to marvel at it. Now, Jesus is only recorded to have said this twice in the whole New Testament. It means to be amazed or surprised or astonished. I like that word. Jesus is astonished at their lack of faith and rejection of him. In contrast, the only other time this word is used, of what Jesus says this word, is in response to the faith of a Roman centurion. I guess what? A Gentile. The centurion had asked Jesus to heal his servant who was dying. Luke 7, 6-10. When Jesus was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy for have you, to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my service, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. He marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. The Gentile soldier knew about Jesus of Nazareth, but he wasn't too familiar with him to ignore the evidence that pointed to him being the Son of God. In fact, he believed so wholeheartedly in his absolute authority that Jesus was astonished at his faith. And the result was that his servant was instantly and miraculously healed by Jesus without even meeting him. In contrast, the result of the unbelief in Jesus' hometown meant that he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Not because Jesus was somehow nobbled by their lack of faith, as if, I can only really perform if people believe. It's because Jesus will not force either his salvation or his restoration on someone who doesn't want it. That's his grace and kindness and forbearance towards everyone. Now here's what I'm not saying. Gentiles are great and Jews are rubbish. That's not what I'm saying. This is a warning to us. We are now grafted into God's people. We are now the ones who should welcome with open arms and hearts King Jesus and know everything or realize we don't know everything. So let me ask you this question. How familiar are you with Jesus? Maybe you're hearing this message and you're realizing you're not that familiar after all. Maybe you think, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm probably not familiar enough. But as I bring this message to a close, I want to clarify one point. When I'm talking about Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus the Son of God, at no point do I mean there are two identities in Jesus, two modes or personas or any such thing. My point is exactly the opposite. 
Whenever we are talking about Jesus of Nazareth, we are talking about the Son of God. Do you understand? Those two realities are held completely in tension in the incarnation. They are indivisible from one another, utterly inseparable, perfectly united in Jesus. So as we've sung this morning, what I'm saying is, the suffering servant of Isaiah, the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world, is also the creator and sustainer of the universe. The Roman centurion got it, and Jesus was astonished at his faith. The people of Jesus' hometown did not get it, and Jesus was astonished at their lack of faith. When you think about Jesus, what sort of thoughts come to your mind? Baby Jesus in the manger? Jesus teaching and ministering to the crowds? Jesus on the cross? All of those are biblical, accurate, truthful representations of Jesus. None of them are wrong or unhelpful images, but here's the thing, they are not the whole picture. I'm going to read to you two passages that I think help to give us a little bit more depth and clarity about the bigger picture. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. By making peace through the blood shed on the cross. That's a big picture, right? That's a big picture of a big God. That's Jesus. Revelation 19, 11 to 16, I love this one. Then I saw heaven opened, says John, and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He, has, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the bigger picture. This is the reality. 
Jesus is also the creator and sustainer of the universe, the mighty warrior king we serve and await his return. This is the God we worship. And anything less is just not big enough. And it certainly isn't God enough. Amen? Can I have the worship team up, please? So how should we, how should we respond? Well, as I was writing this preach, I thought, would Jesus be astonished at me? Would he be astonished that like people in his hometown, I put Jesus in a box labeled things I know about Jesus? Would he be astonished that those things have hampered my faith and meant that he can only do a little work in and through me? Yeah. The answer is yes. I think so. I have done that. So I had to repent and say, I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry. I don't want that to be true of me. I want to have faith like the centurion. I want to have faith that's, that says, Jesus, I know that when you say something, that will happen. I want Jesus to be astonished because I believe so wholeheartedly in his absolute authority. And I've got a big picture of who he is. So in terms of, my, so in terms of response <laughs> for you guys, let me ask you the question. Would Jesus be astonished at you? I think as Christians, we're often guilty of behaving like Lois Lane, who's so familiar with Clark Kent that she fails to see he's actually Superman. Or the people in Jesus' hometown were so familiar with what they knew of him that they refused to accept that there was any more to know or experience. In a similar way, brothers and sisters, beloved, we need to be careful that we don't become so familiar with Jesus that we forget he is God. Or we ignore the f- bigger picture that all things are created through him and for him. And that when he comes again, it will be to deliver righteous, perfect justice and judgment. We need to be careful that we don't try to put Jesus in a box made up of what we think we know about him. We want to see Jesus moving in power in our church, in our towns and in our nation. Then we need to know that we don't know everything about him. We need to remember that the joy of our relationship with him is that we're getting to know him more and more day by day. We get to learn the things he likes and the things he dislikes in our lives. And by putting our trust in him, we can continue to experience what he's like and what he's capable of. I've been walking with Jesus for nearly 40 years, believe it or not. And I can tell you that I learn stuff that's new about him every day. So, would Jesus be astonished at you? Maybe like me, some of you have become so familiar with Jesus that you have put him in a box. Not intentionally, but you have. And maybe you haven't been willing to engage with anything outside of that box, those things that you know about him. I want to encourage you that I believe God wants to 
break those barriers this morning. He wants to pour out a fresh measure of faith over you. So if that's you, if like me, you want to have the faith of the centurion, why don't you come and grab me during this next bit of worship? Because I'd love to pray with you. If you're here this morning and you think, do you know what, I don't think I know Jesus enough. (laughs) Join the club. Why don't you come down the front and we pray together? Maybe there is some stuff you have to come before God and say sorry for. Maybe you've refused to engage with some stuff. You should do that. The Bible says when we come to him and confess our sins, he is just and he forgives our sins. Isn't that beautiful? He forgives our sins. And now we can go again, but differently. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to hand back to these wonderful guys to lead us in worship. Don't don't just let this dwell in your minds. Let it penetrate your heart as we worship. Let's meet God and do business with him this morning. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you sent your son because you love the world so much. King Jesus, I want to thank you that you are greater. You are more mighty, more powerful. You are more glorious than I will ever be able to grasp. But I have the privilege, I have the joy, I have the pleasure of learning more each day. I thank you that you've forgiven me for my sins for putting them in a box. And I pray for my brothers and sisters. Stir their hearts towards you. Bring conviction where it's needed. Bring restoration. Bring release. And I pray, Lord, bring a fresh outpouring of faith that sees my brothers and sisters go on to do mighty, mighty works for your glory. In Jesus' name.